We're working through a series on Sunday mornings, The Abounding Joy of New Testament Hope. This is part five. We've been looking at the objects of our hope. This morning, we have a really great topic, the redemption of our bodies, one of the objects of our hope. The text I want to start with is Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Hope you have your Bible in one form or another, always in church. Romans 8, starting at 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isn't, isn't all revealed yet? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now when Paul wrote, and now, now. And not only the creation, but, but we ourselves, and he's talking about believers, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, eagerly, for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? If you already have it, you don't hope for it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. We are such creatures of sight. We have eyes in the front of our heads. We see. And we attach reality to what we see so easily, so quickly. More challenging for us with things that we don't yet see. Our futures seem so uncertain to us. And so help us as we study the objects of our hope and today the redemption of our bodies. We need you to come and, and stretch our sight down the road and anchor it to a certainty that is yet to come that we might hope for it eagerly, as the text says. Oh, how we need your help. We need your help on both sides of the pulpit in speaking your word and in hearing it. Both are challenges for all of us. And so do your work in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last study, we looked at perhaps the most blessed object of our hope as children of God. In fact, it's called the blessed hope. We read that text last Sunday morning. It's, it's the ultimate hope. The appearing, the second coming of Jesus at the end of this age. 
The blessed hope isn't you dying and going to be with Jesus. That's wonderfully true. But technically, what is referred to as the blessed hope in the New Testament isn't you dying and going to be with Jesus. It's Jesus coming here and your body being raised in a new creation. That's the blessed hope. It's the final hope, the target of all our dreams and aspirations. What we're looking at today is another object of our hope as Christians, the redemption of our bodies. These are great topics for study. Paul says we're to actually eagerly set our hearts on these things, and we should do that freshly each day so they don't get squeezed to the periphery of our thoughts by other concerns. We're to remind ourselves of these great realities because, well, because the whole world is orchestrated, and I mean that verb carefully. It's orchestrated to distract us and to divert us from setting our hearts on these grand eternal sources of hope. So if you don't set your hope on these things, Dress, dress your thoughts like you dress your body. We, we will run dry. We'll get sluggish in our Christian walk. It matters. In fact, the New Testament actually says that about us and the things we set our hopes on. In Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have Full assurance of hope. He's still talking about hope unto the end. Why? Why does this matter? He's going to say. So, here's the reason. You may not be that. You might not get sluggish. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We live in a day where... Millions of people have traded the promise of eternity for the hope of going viral. Considering these great hopeful truths together, the writer says it will keep us from becoming sluggish in our Christian walk. Let's look at this passage from from Romans 8. Point number one. All the pain and suffering we experience in this present life will seem as nothing, not now, but when compared to the glory we will one day experience in the age to come. Paul was constantly talking about this. Romans 8, 18. For for I consider, notice these two verbs. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth, here's the other one, comparing. Considering and comparing. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul doesn't specifically mention his physical body in this verse, but we know that's what he's talking about by the way he refers to his sufferings. So these are the pains that he experiences in his physical existence. These are the sufferings that he feels. There's people in this room who are suffering. There's there's people in this room who have have serious illnesses. You're sitting there listening to me right now. 
people with pain, people with discomfort. Those aren't the only kind of sufferings, but there's, there's people here like that. What, what do we do with these things? What do we do with them when we pray and they don't go away? Well, that's what Paul's talking about. He, he says, I can't, I can't just make all my suffering disappear. That, that might be what I'd like to do with my sufferings, but it, there's another plan. Rather than just remove all my sufferings, causing me to maybe confuse this earthly existence with heaven, God uses my sufferings to force me to set my hope on the age to come. I don't mean that I ignore this present world and its problems, but I mean I, I don't set my hope on the false securities of this world. Then Paul gets more specific. He says, I'm to view uh, the trials, the sufferings, the pains of this life. I'm to view them in a certain way. He says, I'm, I'm to view them in our opening text the way a woman views the pains of giving birth. Now, I've never experienced that type of pain. My wife constantly tells me it's a good thing men don't have babies. There'd be no people on the face of the earth. There were the good old days. The good old days when men didn't even have to go into the delivery room. You just waited outside. You read a golf magazine. You shared a few stories with the other fathers in waiting. After a while, a nurse would come out and told you you had a son or a daughter. It was a perfect system. I don't know who messed it up. Most wives make it clear that having a baby is no picnic. I still remember Carol Burnett used to say that if a man wanted to know what it was like to have a baby, all he had to do was grab his bottom lip and pull it over the top of his head. But there's one thing we know for sure. Everyone knows for sure. What makes that pain bearable for that woman is the fact that she knows there's, there is something precious at the end of that pain. She knows those pains that she feels, they're called birth pains. They're the particular pains that come from something else coming to life. The transition pains of, of a new reality coming into this world. Paul makes that comparison very directly. He does it in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now. And we know from the rest of Paul's life that these weren't just slogan type words, empty words. Paul knew what it was like to to really need to draw strength from another realm. Paul knew suffering like few of us ever will. I don't want to wear you out with references, but you just look at this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. 39 lashes, five times he had that happen to him. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, 
He means with stones. Okay. <laughs> Behave. Three times, three times I was a shipwreck. Night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for, for all the churches. Now, you don't have to be a genius to imagine the effect all of those things have on a person's body over the years as you age. Lashes, 39 lashes, five times, stoned, beaten with rods, shipwrecked at sea. Those things take their toll. You don't get over them as quickly as when you were a young man. And so when Paul says the outer man is wasting away, he knew that. He knew what he was talking about. He was experiencing that sapping of strength. That pain that comes from, consider, bones that are broken and never do get set properly. We're not familiar with that kind of thing. All of these permanent afflictions in an age without Tylenol. But you can... You can catch the passion of his heart, something that he's trying to get across. You can, you can sense what's going on in this aging man's mind as he sits, perhaps with arthritic pain-filled joints that are no longer able to move that quill very well. And he writes, he writes these words in Romans 8, 18. There's the verbs. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's that comparing verb again. Notice those words, the sufferings of this present time. He, he hurts as he writes. He's usually all alone. Not always, but usually all alone. Paul, what's holding you up? What keeps your faith alive and confident? Well... Well, he can't make his suffering disappear. He, 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 he does have the ability to put it into perspective. So he doesn't ignore it, but he does compare it. He does consider. There's, there's mental energy being expended here. He compares present suffering with future glorification. And we know this wasn't just some fluffy daydream with Paul. He... He pushes his mind into this divine, hope-filled comparison over and over again. He, he never gave up on it. You know these words. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 16. So we do not lose heart. 
though our outer nature is wasting away. I can't do anything about that. That's what Paul's saying. You can't either. Not ultimately. Though our outward nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being, this is wonderful, renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction, this is most of his adult life, by the way, this slight momentary affliction is is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all. See that word again? Comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For, for the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen, they're eternal. And you begin to just see how important this subject of hope is. These are truths that must be known and and considered and made known over and over in the church of Jesus Christ. There's no strength without that hope. You'll be sluggish without that hope. So the doctrine of hope, it's not an elective. It's a compulsory course. Point number two. Paul tells us why we can be so sure of this hope. I've got to hurry. Romans chapter 8, 19 to 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who's this? Who's that him? It's not a trick. Who do you think it is? It's God. It's God. This isn't the devil we're talking about. This is God. Because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I see there's more, but I see at least two key ideas in these verses. A, there is something wrong with this whole created world as we see it today. It's... it's, it's not the way God intended it to be. I, I, let me just say, beware of arguments from all sorts of people. Very clever arguments, well thought through, except people who will argue against the existence of God or the goodness of God or the power of God or all three. And the way they reach that conclusion is they look at the world today and they assume, here's the important point, they assume an unbroken link between God creating the world and the world as it is today. And it's not an unbroken link. There's the fall. So you can't look at a world that is broken and corrupt, decaying, hurting, and you can't just say, well, then God can't be good. That, this is not the way God made the world. There's something wrong with all of creation. It's, verse 19, it's, it's waiting with eager longing. This, this universe is, is filled with groaning and longing. And Paul makes it clear that this is the Christian's experience as well. He does that in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Groan inwardly. 
as we wait for adoption as sons, sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So the Holy Spirit comes and he doesn't remove this groaning. He actually increases the homesickness. We aren't excluded from the groaning. This, this frustration that soaks our beings to the core. I mean, we experience trials. We experience sickness. We experience suffering. We experience pain. We experience loss. We experience opposition. We experience difficulty. We long for the completion of our redemption. Long for the day when redemption will reach all the way down into these physical bodies. Long. We long for it. I don't get it, Pastor Don. You said you were going to look at how we can be so sure of our hope. And all you've done is to prove from this text that things are a mess. What gives? Let me finish. Paul gives us more in these great verses. He, he doesn't just say that the world is groaning. There's, there's another important detail in those words. He tells us it's God's plan. God's plan that the world exists in this groaning. You see it in verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It wasn't an accident. But because of him who subjected it in hope. Only the Bible gives an adequate reason for the frustration and pain of life in this world. If, if evolution were absolutely true, things would be evolving and improving and moving upwards and onwards. Why, why are people filled more and more with hopelessness and despair? Why are we not solving all of our problems as we become more brilliant? Why can't politicians and scientists and natural selection itself take away human sin and shame? And, and you start to see that only the Bible comes to terms with the frustration, the groaning of this world. Only the Bible accounts for what we all feel so deeply at different times in our hearts. One of the reasons I know God's word is true is I can see in it the only explanation for the world as it presently is. So in this despair, Paul says there's the hand of God. And, and even as Christians, we suffer because God in his love refuses us to allow us to feel at home and to set our hearts in this fallen world. He gets us ready for another creation. In fact, he makes us long for it. He produces that longing in our hearts. I said there were two things in these verses. Here's the second thing, B. We learn that just as certainly as creation, creation experiences groaning and frustration now, it will experience glory and freedom on God's terms and in God's time. I'm getting close to done. Romans 8, 23 to 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we ourselves who, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. This was part of our salvation. It was part of the plan when God saved us. Right from the beginning, this longing was built into your conversion. It's not an add-on. Now hope that is seen isn't hope. For who longs for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so God has built two basic realities into the fabric of creation. The first is futility, and the second is hope. And he's put futility there to teach mankind that sin has consequences. He put futility there to teach mankind that he cannot save himself. It's a very slow lesson learned for most people. But God has also set hope in our hearts. Creation itself is suffering. But now, and remember the childbirth illustration, it's, it's suffering getting ready to birth something. It's, it's suffering brought upon creation by a loving God trying to cause us all to recognize the futility of our own resources. And it's suffering given to birth hope for a divine grace solution. Something that will, God's constantly trying to dislodge us from our hopeless idols. And he keeps trying. His is a very restlessly reaching love. Those famous words, not written by a Christian, hope springs eternal in the human breast. They're probably true. Even, even pagans intuitively know they were made for something better than what this groaning world presently offers. But Christians need to know what they were designed for. They remind themselves over and over. They consider, they think, and they compare. Constantly compare. Present and future glory. Present and future glory. Christians know there's a part of salvation they don't fully see yet. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I mean, the thoughts pile up here. 18 says there's a glory that is yet to be revealed to us. 23 says we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. 25 says we wait for it with patience. 19 says, all of creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Point number three, I'm jumping ahead. For you guys up there. The specific hope Paul speaks of in these verses is the redemption of our bodies. You see it in 23 to 25. Let me just clean this up a little bit. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait. What are we waiting for? He tells us in the last part of 23, the redemption of our bodies, very specifically. Let me ask you this question. Uh, we are unique in all of this created world. I talked about this a couple Sunday mornings ago. We are unique in that we have 
physical created bodies that have experienced redemption. I mean, there are created beings who don't have physical bodies. Angels were created at some point. There are also physical bodies that aren't made in God's image. Dogs and cats, aardvarks, reptiles. But people, people are the only beings in the whole universe who have physical bodies but are yet made in the image of God. Only people. And I say all of that just to raise, I think, an interesting and maybe important question. Why is God so interested in the redemption of the body of his redeemed? Why is it just wrong? It is just wrong to think of death as we die, the body goes in the grave, and our spirits float off to heaven where we're with Jesus forever. That is not Christianity. It's commonly hell, but it's not Christianity. We're not just spirits floating around somewhere up there. That's nirvana, you know, in some peaceful, blissful state. That is not what we believe. We believe that Jesus is coming back and the body of my dad in the New Market Cemetery is going to come out of the grave. There will be a new creation with resurrected bodies, a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a physicality to it. Why is God so interested in the redemption of the body? What I just talked about, why is that so important? Why did God give us bodies in the first place? I mean, he could have created us any way he chose. He's God. Why didn't he make us spiritual beings? And, and here's the answer to that question. God already had spiritual beings to obey and worship him. God gave us bodies so we could worship him in ways that no other created order could. And that's why the scriptures are so adamant and clear on the glorifying of God with these bodies of ours. It is our unique assignment in all of creation. It is our unique assignment before our Redeemer. There are spiritual beings that have never experienced either the fall or redemption. They can't worship God with the same experience of redemptive joy that we have experienced. There are spiritual beings that are fallen. Peter talks about it, but they have never been redeemed. They are still stubborn and rebellious against their creator. There are living physical beings in the whole animal world who were never made in the same image of their creator and aren't capable of God consciousness as you and I are. There are material created objects that aren't living in any sense. Rocks and trees and atoms. They just, they just reflect. We sing about it in Then Sings My Soul when through the woods I wander. These things just reflect the creative power of God, but they do it unconsciously. We're different from all of those. We are physical beings who have fallen, who had God the Son become permanently one of us in the incarnation that was never undone to redeem us from our rebellious condition. Therefore, we and we alone, we alone have been bought with a price. 
Paul talks about the obligations. I'm almost done. Look at these three texts. I'm going to put them on one slide. I want you to see the emphasis here. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay? Glorify God in that body. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 6.13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. No doubt about it. The body. The body is God's instrument to glorify himself in an absolutely unique way that is not possible anywhere else in creation. Just here that happens. This is absolutely unique in the created world. Sexual sins are so damaging because they go against the very grain of God's creative plan and design for the body. Worship is so important. We raise our hands, we lift our voice, we lift our head, we bend our knee because the body is involved. Present your bodies. This fulfills God's unique design, his creative plan. Spirit beings can think nice thoughts about God, but only you and I can offer our bodies as living sacrifices because they've been bought with a price. Read this verse with me in unison and we'll close. Let's read. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And everyone said, let's pray.